0: One of the very real blessings uh, of Christmas is the Christmas music that we get to sing um, and uh, and get to hear a lot of our very talented people in our church to play that music and sing that music. So, Mike, thank you very much. Um, that was a blessing. and Love it. And uh, thank you to all of the rest of our musicians and people as you are preparing probably to sing or to play an instrument or one of those many things. Um, Uh, You make our opportunity to gather and worship better, and uh, we thank you for all of you. We're going to be turning in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew for the next few weeks um, throughout the month of December. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning, which kind of fits well into the the Christmas season, because we're going to be talking about the Magi, the, the wise men who came to see Jesus. And we're going to read actually just the first six verses. So we're not going to read the whole story, but we're going to read the beginning of the story because there's something very important I want you to to learn from um, this interaction between Herod and the Magi. So if you would, we're going to read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. And the Word of God says this, he says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Please be seated. I do not think there is a, a, I'll say a church song more associated with the Christmas season than that classic hymn, Joy to the World. And I would probably dare say if you were in church during the Christmas season and you went to a church that never once sang any part of Joy to the World at any time that you might want to step back and question that church. So, you know, don't forget that one, okay? I said that and thought, "Ooh, I bet someone might need to look at their list." Um, Ever since I was a kid, and even even today, I always we when I was a kid, we used to always have a candlelight service on Christmas Eve, and we have this year we are going to have our candlelight service on Christmas Eve, and that makes me excited because that's that's kind of that's how I. It sounds silly, but you guys all get it. That's how I grew up. And on Christmas Eve, whatever we had going on, when I was a young, when I was a young man, I would, I would usually work at, at, at my job and we would get off a little bit early. And even as a kid, and every year on Christmas Eve, I knew that we were going to get dressed up and dressed up a little bit more than normal um, for church. I would get dressed, we would get dressed up and we would go to church for the Christmas Eve candlelight service. And one of the, the songs that I knew for a fact was going to play during that, often with a choir behind the, the worship leader, was Joy to the World. And you would see, hear it saying loudly, even forcefully, Joy to the World, the Lord is Come. And it really it really, it came with this power and this, this, this um, celebratory tone to it that can only really happen with music, right? And you would just, you know, it was the day before Christmas. It was, it was all the anticipation and all the excitement and all the things that go with the Christmas season. And on that Christmas Eve night, suddenly, bang! As loud as the choir could see it, could sing it. It was like, it's here. Joy to the world! The Lord is come. That's really what our word, Advent, that we talk about with the Advent candles, and and I believe is even on the front of your bulletin this morning, is this word, Advent, means to arrive, to come, to be here, to be present. Christmas and the Christmas season is a celebration that Jesus has come. We live in a world that, that is, is often feels like it has forgotten that. And as we celebrate the Christmas season and we get caught up in music about snowman and, and jingle bells, we get overwhelmed with, with red ribbons and decorations and all of the presents that, that, that come during this time. And we, we can sometimes begin to lose in the Christmas season the reality that Jesus has come. Now, the catch is, and something that I want us to consider today and in the weeks to come, is we may sing, and we may sing joyfully, joy to the world, the Lord is come, but a world that has drifted farther and farther away from that truth may respond with the question, so what? Why are we joyful? Why should we be why should we sing joy to the world? Why is this Jesus coming this historical event? Why is this such a big deal? And why was this man named Jesus who lived 2000 years ago somewhere in Israel, somewhere in Palestine, why is he someone worth celebrating? And that is the question that we're going to answer over the course of the next few weeks. So we talk about the king has come, but I think it's important that we know why the king has come. And the good news is, he tells us why. We don't have to do some sort of crazy theological acrobatics. We don't have to go here, here and here and here and and pull every reason under the sun. But in reality, Jesus has told us why he came. And it does so so throughout Scripture, to be sure, but especially here in the Gospel of Matthew where we are going to be parked for the next few weeks, we see again and again and again Jesus telling the people in one way or another why he has come. In fact, he does it so much that, that I only had so many weeks to, to have this conversation, and so I had to pick some of the more, the, the more powerful ones of there. But I encourage you to, to look at the Gospel of Matthew, to read it, and, and begin to look for times where Jesus said, I, I came to do this. Often he says, I did not come to do this, but I came to do this. As we begin... It's fitting that we begin at the birth of Jesus and at the very, very beginning. And of all of them, this is the only one that we get the why did Jesus come? Why is he here not from Jesus' own mouth? But what we do have here is a prophecy. And so while it didn't come from Jesus' mouth, it most certainly came from the mouth of God. And it reminds us of what God's plan and what God's intention and the reason why Jesus has come. Now our passage doesn't begin with Jesus because Jesus is still a a baby or a small child. But it begins with the scribes and the priests talking to King Herod. And as they do so, they quote the prophet Micah. If we ask the question of our passage this morning, why did Jesus come? We see the very answer in the prophecy when he says that out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. See, Jesus came to rule and to shepherd God's kingdom. So let's begin with this idea of ruling that out of Bethlehem will come a ruler. Now, as I've mentioned already, see what's happened here is we've had these magi from the east who have shown up and they've said, Where is the king? And and this just causes all kinds of panic, and so so Herod kind of secretly calls in the, the the scribes and the chief priests, and and despite the fact that that King Herod really wants to claim that he is this this great Jewish king for the for Israel, and and that he's man he's such a blessing and a gift for them in the midst of this Roman um, occupation and all that stuff, the reality is is he's really not much of a follower of Yahweh, and so he has to bring them in, and he says, okay. Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? What what do the Scriptures tell us about the the, the Davidic king, the Messiah that's supposed to come? And they quote for him Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So if you want to go over and look at that, we're going to spend a little bit of time in Micah today along with Matthew. In Micah 5, verse 2, the whole verse reads this way. It says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, and if Ratha is the, kind of the name of a region where a certain family lived, um, it, it's, it's kind of translated into the New Testament as just Judea. He says, "...too little to be among the clans of Judah. For one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings are from long ago, from the days of eternity." And it's important, I think, to understand the context in which Micah is writing because it actually really gives us some information about what's happening in the book of Matthew. see, Micah had been writing to Judah, to the southern kingdom, and he had been specifically kind of going at them for their sinfulness and their waywardness, which included a very harsh indictment of the leadership of Judah. He had told the, the nation of Judah that, that Judah had actually was having uh, very unjust rulers, ones that, that were not treating them well, who were luring them away to, to worship idols, and, and that, that, the, that, these were, that they had bad, bad people in the leadership. And so in Micah chapter 5, we see that God is offering the people of Judah hope that there would come a day when there would be a Messiah king, that the, the king of the, from the Davidic line, this messianic king, would come and would rule over them. But unlike their current rulers, unlike the rulers of Judah in the days of Micah, this king would be just. And he would rule with fairness and equity. This was an intention to, to bring hope that there would come a day. Where the Messianic king would deliver these people from unjust rulers. We see this same idea um, from the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah 9.9 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation humble mounted on a donkey even on a colt the foal of a donkey see even in in the other messianic prophecies there was this idea that this messianic king that this son of david who would come he would not only be just and right and fair for the people but he would deliver them from unjust rulers I do have to say, I think it is somewhat important to note that in at least in um, Micah, the unjust rulers are their own people. It is the priests and the would-be local kings. And so the very fact that, that this prophecy is being spoken in the presence of the priests and Herod has a little bit of extra weight. Because Herod has been essentially a vassal king of Rome and he was not a good and just king. In my studies of this, Herod in his latter years grew so paranoid and he was such an unhealthy mentally and such an unjust king that Caesar himself once said, "I I would rather be Herod's dog than his son because you had a better chance of living if you were his dog than his son. And yet into this, a prophecy is being told about how God will remove the unjust rulers and replace them with a just ruler. For us today, we may look at the idea of Christ coming to rule and to be our, our, uh, to be our king with a level of uneasiness. We as as Americans, and, and have been very blessed to live in this country for, for over 200 years, we don't have a concept of a king that is usually very good. And so the idea of having a king who rules over us often is met by us with trepidation and we don't like that. And especially if you may be someone who hasn't grown up in the church and hasn't grown with this understanding of Jesus being king and king and Lord of lords, it is a foreign concept to us. But that's who He is. And one of the things that we have a hard time understanding is that the rule of Jesus sets all things right. And it allows us to live a freer life than even what we experience today. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning and I thought it was very interesting because the conversation just, just came up and we were talking about how when God created in the garden and he, he created man and, and, and woman and he talked about how he placed them in the garden and, and he gave them all the food to eat and he gave them dominion over everything and, and he told them that they were to, to take care of it and to whoops. To take care of it and to subdue it and to, to work the land and, and he all this. And we recognize that, that God, in the midst of the garden, gave Adam and Eve all of this freedom. There was no set rule on, on what they were supposed to do as far as it led to ruling and cultivating, what, how to use the animals, what to do. There's there all of this freedom in there. And he gave them one restriction. Saying, of the tree of the knowledge of, fruit, of, of good and evil, you are not to eat of it. For the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And so Adam and Eve had a tremendous level of freedom under the rule of God. And one of the things that we don't always realize is that when we surrender ourselves to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we too are given a tremendous level of freedom. In fact, we are more free under Christ than we are under sin in the flesh. I liked what Paul said about this in Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, two, he says this. He says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. See, that's one of the things that we don't always understand: is that that when we remain enslaved to sin and we remain enslaved to this world and the things of this world, of this world, we are far more restricted and enslaved than if we would surrender ourselves to Christ. And probably many of us in this room remember and have some idea of what it's like to to be enslaved to our lusts and our desires, to be enslaved to what the world tells us we are supposed to be and the worldly expectations that is put on us. And there are times in our life where we feel so caught up in this world that we cannot hardly breathe. And it is Christ who speaks into the world that that we begin enslaved enslaved with. And he says, I have set you free. In fact, he even tells us that I have overcome this world. And so while we, we have in this prophecy that one is coming who will rule over Israel and that the king is coming as we sing in, in our cantata songs and all that stuff, we are reminded that we have far more freedom in Christ than we have in this world. Not only has Christ come to rule and come to be our king, but he has also come to be our shepherd. Going back to the text again, he says that out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people. Now, ironically, if you remember what we just read in verse 2, that we don't actually see that word shepherd. That's because it's just a few verses down in verse 4. See, I want to kind of put this reminder. We we tend to think in book chapter verse, right? Because all of us have Bibles that have book chapter verse. They didn't have that. And it was not uncommon for them to not have book, chapter, verse, so they could say, well, it's talking about the same person, so I'm just going to put that over with it. They're not misusing Scripture. They're just condensing it because Herod probably wasn't that smart. And that's found in verse 4. So Micah 5, 4 says this. It says, and he, this is that ruler that will come out of Bethlehem, he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. There has always historically been a very close tie between the idea of being a ruler and a king and the idea of being a shepherd. Now this actually to a degree predates David, but it is really personified and really made concrete in the person of David. This shepherd king who killed the bear and the lion while he tended his father's sheep that would one day become the great warrior king David that would unite all the tribes. In this analogy, we see rulers as shepherds, and we see this most clearly in the prophet Ezekiel. And again, in Ezekiel 34, we hear God judging the bad shepherds of Israel and gives hope of a new shepherd of Israel. I would probably argue in, in Ezekiel, especially in Ezekiel 34, that when, when God is speaking about the shepherds of Israel, it's a slightly broader when it's talking about not only the king, but also the rulers and the priests, all of those that would have led the, the people of Israel. And he's saying all of them have abandoned their job of shepherding the people and have cared only for themselves. They have abandoned them to danger. And then in verse 23, it says this: It says, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. And he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Again, the Messiah, the one who the Magi have come to worship, is that person. Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, verse 11, that I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That should give us pause for just a moment to think about what a shepherd does. Jesus himself has already said that, that, that he would lay down his life for the sheep. Indeed, that's what a shepherd does, As a shepherd's job is to put himself between the sheep and danger. And is willing to even sacrifice his own life to keep whatever danger there might be from the sheep. And lo and behold, that is exactly what Jesus did. Because make no mistake, every single one of us are the sheep that Jesus talks about. And every single one of us, when we are apart from Christ, we find ourselves in danger. So that's the thing about, we use this term a lot. It's called, I got saved. Well, in order to be saved, you got to be saved from something. You have to be saved from peril. You have to be saved from something bad. No one has ever had to save me from my wife. Well, that's not entirely true. But my wife is good. And I don't typically need to be saved from my wife. No, when we are saved, we are saved from danger. And for us, if we are outside of the will of God, if we are outside of Christ, that danger is very real because it is sin and it is the effects of sin the bible tells us very clearly for the wages of sin is death and make no mistake when we talk about how jesus saves and how jesus is the good shepherd jesus came and stood between us and death and he laid down his life so that death would no longer pose a threat to us What other passages do we have in Scripture that detail to us the duties of a shepherd? Well, one, we actually talked about this last Wednesday here during our our Wednesday night prayer meeting. Psalm 23 says this. It says, For the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. If we just take this part of Psalm 23 and look at the duties of a shepherd, we recognize that a shepherd provides. Not only does he provide, but he also protects, he restores, he he guides, he even comforts. When we think about this shepherd, this one who will shepherd his people, Israel, he is doing all of these things. He is our ruler and king. He is giving us freedom, but within the context that we are supposed to have, and then within that, because of his rule, because he is the one who shepherds us, he is providing for us. He provided the most important thing, which is salvation through Christ. He protects us. I'm sure there are many people in this room have testimony of how things in their life and decisions that they've made could have turned out far worse than they did. The very fact that I stand before you today is a testimony of God's protection. And I think that is probably true of every single person in this room maybe even in ways that we don't fully understand. He restores us. That might be the best news in here. And when we are down and out, when we have given in to sin and sin has broken us royally, and when because we are sinful people living in a sinful world, we have seen our lives completely undone, When we've been crushed because of a lost loved one, because of a broken marriage, because of a job that fell apart, a relationship, maybe you had this plan for your life that you were going to to graduate high school and go to college and get married and have 2.5 kids and and a white picket fence or whatever it might have been and that's not what ended up happening. And you felt, and your expectations were not met, and you were crushed because of it. When you cried out to God, you recognized how He restored you. And He built you back up. And He made something beautiful out of the things that crushed you. He guides us, He guides us through His Word. If you're in Christ, he guides you through the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of you. And he comforts us. Jesus himself said that in this world, you have trouble, but I have overcome the world. And time and time again, God's word and God's people rally to those who are hurting. And give them comfort. We see in scripture that Jesus has done all of these things. That he is the great king and that he is the good shepherd. That he is our Lord and our savior, our God and our friend. And that leaves us with kind of an interesting part of our passage today. Is it's How are we going to respond to this? See, we have these magi who come in and they say, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And I, and I can only imagine for just a, a moment like what that would have been like. You know, you have lived a certain way for decades, maybe even centuries. You're used to you know, the way things have gone. Maybe even if you're talking about Herod's court, you've benefited from it. Is it ideal? Well, you might say, well, it's not ideal. But hey, I'm doing pretty good. And then suddenly people from from way far away, people from Persia, people from the two countries over show up and say, Hey, where's the new king? And it's interesting to see the responses of these people because the first group we have is Herod. And really, I love what it says. It says, Herod and all of Jerusalem with him. See, when they heard the news that the Messiah, the true king of Israel, had arrived, had been born, and that there was actually some level of physical evidence that went with it, imagine for just a moment, they come in and they say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star. Can you imagine going out on your, your balcony, you're one of the people, and you go out with one of these magi, one of these wise men, astrolog- astronomer type people, and they say, see, And they point to a star that you've never noticed. And these are the people that study stars and said, that wasn't there before. That'd be kind of trippy, just for the record. And it says, this is what it says they did. When they heard this, they were worried and they were troubled worried that not, and, and you got to you got to think about what what caused this unrest again it says they, they said all these things it said when the king heard this he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him and that word troubled is actually a really strong word he was shook and he and, and not only he was but everybody with him and you got to think about all the reasons why someone like Herod be worried about this news he might have been worried because it might mean the loss of the control that he thought he had. He might be worried because of his sinfulness and his wayward wish might be exposed. And by the way, these are the, the same things for us too, right? He might be worried that ma- the, the Messiah might bring them problems in his immediate context it's fascinating because the the the, the prophecy about the Messiah that gets te- that gets told to him is like hey the Messiah is going to come and set all things right and Herod probably wanted to kind of respond to that and go well what's wrong and we got to remember this because when we when we share the good news of the gospel with people sometimes they don't recognize That things could be better. They're living messy lives in a messy world and they think that the mess is normal. And the prophecy speaks into the mess and says, hey, the mess does not have to be messy. But if you will put your faith in Jesus, he can call you out of that mess. And guys, people don't always see that. And it, we can't just walk up to them with four spiritual laws and, and, a, and a prayer and expect them to be immediately see how messy their mess is. we got to love on some people a little bit. we got to show them what Christ can do and what makes living in Christ and living in the body of Christ how it is different from what they're living in. we got to pour into some people as we share Christ with them. When we think about us today, we have to recognize that there are people, including people in this room right now, that are scared that Jesus may cost them something they love. might be a lifestyle. might be a significant other. It might be things that they have kind of turned into idols. might be their certain political convictions or, or who knows what. They're scared that it might cost them something that they love. Not only this, but people might be scared that that our lives or, or the lives of people that we interact with might have to change, and change in dramatic and drastic ways if they acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. And I think for many we are just scared to face sin, specifically to face our sin, and to repent of it. See, this is one of the responses that people are going to have to Jesus. See, when, when, when the, the magi came and announced that he had been born, that Jesus had come, they were scared. And I believe that there are probably people in this room, and there very well may be people that you're interacting with on the daily, that when you tell them about Jesus, it brings terror into their heart. They may not be able to word it that way. They may not say it that way. It may come across to you as anger or, or or just being uncomfortable or anxiety or who knows what else or indifference or who knows what else. But the reality is, is deep in their heart, they know that if this is true and Jesus has indeed come and he has come to save the world from their sin and that Jesus really did walk on this earth, die on the cross and was risen from the grave three days later, that that has to dramatically impact their life. And that scares them. And that might scare you. But brothers and sisters, this is good news. And when we think about all the fear that may well up in a person because of this news, we need to go and we need to love We need to show them the truth by our lives and our speech. And I pray that if you're here today and you're hearing this, and and in reality, the good news of the gospel scares you a little bit, I want to encourage you, it is worth it. That whatever you might have to lose, whatever you might have to give up, whatever changes might have to happen in your life, they are worth it because what Jesus offers you is far better than anything the world could even hope to offer you. First and foremost, because everything the world has to offer you will die with this world. But Christ offers you life everlasting. But let's look at the Magi. And I love this, this idea, and I, I'm, not, I'm not a particular scholar on ways of court in first century Palestine. But I can only imagine that these Magi were people of prominence and people of wealth. The kind of people that when they showed up in Jerusalem, they were immediately given audience with the king. And they showed up in all of their, 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 uh, all of their maybe the extravagance and the air of nobility. And as they walk into the courts of Herod, this vassal king of Judea, and they walk in and they immediately announce their intention. And they say, "Where is he who has been born the King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him." Wait a second. Who were these guys again? What did it say? Now, in the days of Herod, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod, magi from the east. This is not like saying from the east as in Younger's Creek, which is probably south. Whatever. These people were from a totally different country east of Jerusalem. In fact, most uh, historical accounts would, uh, would wager that they were probably from uh, present-day Iraq and Iran, that they were from what, what they might call Persia. These were Gentiles who were coming into the Jewish community, the Jewish kind of nation-state that is there, and they come in and they say, We have seen that you have a new king, and we have come to worship him. The priests, the scribes, even this vassal king wanted nothing to do with the Messiah. His very mention made them uncomfortable and, and, and they wouldn't go with the Magi to go see him. But these Gentile scholars from Persia wanted to worship him. This is a reminder to us that the good news that Christ has come belongs to everybody. And see, here's the difference maker. It's not your ethnicity. It's not whether you're from Missouri or North Carolina or Indiana or Texas or Kentucky. It's not whether you're from Brazil or or Guyana or or Africa or, or Eastern Europe like Poland or from China or Southeast Asia. It's not, your, it's not whether you are UK or U of L, Democrat, Republican, male, female. None of that stuff mattered. The least likely people to come and see Jesus were the very ones who said, I am here to worship him, and that's what makes the difference. See, these these Persian scholars, these magi from the east, recognized that Jesus is king and they came to worship. And that is what we are offering you today. Jesus has come to be your ruler and your shepherd. And he is offering everyone in this room and everyone beyond this room the opportunity to be in his flock to surrender themselves to His Lordship, to recognize Him and acknowledge His as King, to surrender yourself to Jesus so that you might have new life in Him. See, the reality is Jesus has come. And He has come to be our King and our Shepherd. How are you going to respond? Are you going to choose worship over fear? Are you going to choose faith over maintaining some some illusion of control in your own life? Are you going to choose Jesus over self? Are you going to choose freedom or or enslavement? The choice is yours and only you get to choose will you give your life to Jesus will you make him your king your shepherd your lord and your savior or will you be like Herod and those in Jerusalem who only wanted to get away from him us pray. Our gracious God and King, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, sometimes as we get into the Christmas season, we forget just how important and significant the fact that Jesus has come is. And sometimes we forget that, that for many people, this is a, a hard pill to swallow, that this is a hard thing to understand, that, that if we make Jesus our Lord and our King, that we will be but god this is the good news of the gospel and lord i pray that that we would recognize and begin to see just how we have been enslaved to our sin and enslaved to death and god i pray that in recognizing that we would give our lives to you lord that we would surrender ourselves to you that we would respond like the magi did and say we have come to worship Lord, if there are those in this room that that need to give their lives to Jesus, that need to surrender to his, his kingdom and to his lordship, Lord, I pray that they would not waste one more day. And God, that they would either come talk to me or come talk to someone who brought them. And Lord, that they would hear this good news and they would believe. God, for the rest of us, I pray beyond, any, by, beyond the, the, the deepest parts of my heart, Lord, that you would burden us to go to people and to share this good news and to love them and, and, and walk with them and encourage them so they might see that they've been enslaved and that they might long to be free and that they might want that freedom through a relationship with Christ. For God, we know there is no other way to be set free apart from Christ. Lord, we know that Jesus is king and that he is our shepherd whether we acknowledge him or not. And God, I pray that you would use this church and that every person in this church would recognize Jesus as Lord and be saved. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.